Hello and welcome to the Unbalanced Podcast. I'm Drasty. I'm Jen. And I'm Becky. And we're a group of PhD students slash engineers slash physicists on a mission to understand the unbalanced landscape across science, technology, engineering and maths, otherwise known as STEM. One thing that I've always thought is that taking the podcast back to the beginning and sort of trying to understand about what happens when you try and inspire like young people into science. I think we've all experienced that when we've been doing outreach that we found the small kids sometimes who've come to stalls that we've been presenting at, you know, they're always really inspired and, and excited by science from that young age, but it's difficult to know sort of what impact you're having. And I thought it could be really interesting to try and understand why that's important, why you need to get young children into science. Yeah, I found sort of young children probably up until the age of sort of five or six, you don't quite know if what you're teaching them is being received. I think the the pure joy you see, you kind of feel like, okay, I've yeah. made them happy for sort of five minutes, but I don't <laughs> know how inspired they might feel after seeing something like that. But then the sort of 17 or 18 year olds who you know are going to take back the, this experience and maybe make a decision on what um, university course they study. That to me feels like I get a better response from doing outreach. And I guess we want to understand as part of this podcast journey, like what is the most effective way to inspire children into science? We've always already known that if you inspire a young child, if you make them have fun doing a science experiment, they are more likely to uh, think about STEM as a career. I also want to know, like, what we learn from that question, how can we then apply it to some of the problems we're seeing now? So if we look at what we see in these senior positions or what we see in terms of retention and careers. Yeah. Well, Fran Long is someone who is basically an expert in primary science education. She's done a lot of research in the subject and is a fountain of knowledge. So um, she's a really great person to start answering this question, hopefully throughout this episode. So I'm really happy to have you here, Fran. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. It would be good if you could just um, quickly sort of give the listeners a little introduction to you and your background and sort of how you got to where you are now. Sure. Well, firstly, thank you very much for inviting me to come and speak today. This is um, a subject that I'm very passionate about. My first career was as a midwife, so working in the hospital. And then mm. I had a, quite a long career break for children. When I came back, I went into teaching and very quickly and as a primary teacher, I decided that I was really passionate about science. It's a subject that I didn't particularly enjoy at school, actually. I found it quite difficult. Mm. But when I went into primary teacher training, I had a very good lecturer at the university. And I suddenly realised that actually, if you made science really exciting and hands on and creative, it was really good fun and that children could learn through their own hands on experience. So it really inspired me to think about teaching science and raising um, STEM career aspirations through creative teaching. And that's really where I got started. So I worked as a primary teacher initially, then I specialised as a primary science specialist and had a role within that and in the school I was working in and I went on to do a number of things I, I won the primary science quality mark goals for our school and I became a fellow of the primary science teaching trust all really from my initial interest in delivering dynamic science lessons at the primary age and seeing that there was a real opportunity to inspire people about future careers 
And then I went on to do some research, which I'm sure we'll unpack a little bit in this mm-hmm. podcast, looking about how to raise STEM career aspirations from a very early age for children. And from there, I went and did a project at the Natural History Museum in Oxford, which was linked to the British Insect Collection, and looking at how to engage disadvantaged young people with drawers of dead insects. So that was a really fascinating challenge, working with entomologists. And then I went on and to my current role, where I'm working at the Faraday Institution as the Education and Training Coordinator. And that involves everything from running the PhD training programme, undergraduate attraction events, some STEM outreach and some training for researchers. But I think what hinges throughout my career really is this passion for finding creative hooks for inspiring people about STEM careers which is what we're going to talk about a bit today. Yeah yeah thanks for that and I think it's it's really important isn't it and I I think you're quite well placed having had I guess expertise from from primary education and now where you sit right through to sort of PhDs and and postdocs and beyond so so really you've kind of encountered the whole spectrum of of science really um, at all ages. I just um, before we delve into sort of the you know the nitty gritty of of the podcast and talking a bit more about the the imbalance that exists in in STEM, um, I just wanted to really get your thoughts on why you think that having a diverse workforce in STEM is important in the first place. It's a really good question, actually, and something I think we wrestle with a lot at the moment, particularly. Mm. And for me, it's about getting the best ideas and the best results. And that if you have diversity in a team, so there's so many diversity in so many different forms. But if you have diversity of thought and diversity of ideas, then you are going to get best outcomes. And I know from the work that I've done, even with the PhD training course, we've had people come in and do strength profiling and looking at how actually in a team you get the best results if you have lots of different people with different ways of working and different skill sets. And actually, but collaborating together with a wide range of people, you can have the best ideas. And so it's it, there's so many ways that we can ensure that the workforce is diverse. But absolutely, when we're looking at research and science, getting the best outcomes is really, really key. Yeah. And I think, I mean, we touched on it um, in in the previous episode of this podcast a little bit that, that diversity, you know, it comes in many forms and, and people you know people's experience or people's ethnicity or gender or um disabilities you know it all it all feeds together into this this idea of having a diverse workforce that is for everyone and I guess that's the ultimate goal absolutely yeah but there are like you you're highlighting many challenges in actually achieving that so for me it's about looking at positive actions that are going to make a difference and working towards that goal of creating a really dynamic and diverse workforce which is our goal at the Faraday Institution in the work that we're doing on energy storage. Yeah, yeah, exciting. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing how it can sort of change in the future. Um, so yeah, so I guess then then taking it back to, to basics, back to primary education, um, I found it really interesting when you just sort of talked about how you really got into, into science during your primary teaching, because I, I suppose actually as a primary educator, you teach all subjects. So it's something I hadn't really thought about so much before. But I wondered as well, you know, trying to tailor the teaching um, and making it exciting for the students. Um, how how important is that to try and engage specifically girls if we can talk about specifically girls now how how important is that to engage them into stem careers I, I guess sort of relating to your your publication about um raising career aspirations through through primary years 
Yeah, so I did a piece of research called Raising STEM Careers Aspirations in the Prime Years, which has been published in the Journal of Emerging Science. And what that really entailed was 16 months where every month I invited scientists and engineers from a range of diverse fields to come and talk to primary school children. And I looked at the impact on career aspirations. And the notable um, difference was the massive increase in number of girls that could consider science and engineering careers at the end compared to a school down the road with the same de demographic and compared yeah. to some other larger studies that have been done nationally. So I think in primary education, there's a huge focus on maths and English. And unfortunately, with the way the curriculum set up and SATS tests, they get a lot of priority. And it was my desire and goal really to make sure that science had greater prominence in the curriculum mm. and I think there's a number of reasons why that's important I think a lot of research shows that really children need to be inspired by the age of 10 as far as STEM careers are concerned and that from that point onwards aspirations start to dwindle so giving children belief firstly particularly for girls belief that a science career or job related to that is something that they can do but before you get to that stage, it's all about enjoyment. And mm. for me, it's about getting pleasure from um, experimenting, asking questions, being curious, asking why and wondering how things work and, and why they are the way they are. And hands on science experiments are the best way to do this. And for me, what makes things motivating for children is seeing real world relevance. And if they can see the real world relevance to what they're learning in class has in terms of future roles for jobs, changing our planet, that's something that children can really understand and it's very inspiring. So yeah, for me, yeah. by the end of the project, I'd had everything from space science scientists, medical engineers, F1 race engineers, all sorts of different people in really exciting roles. And it wasn't painting a picture of science is easy, it was actually painting a picture of, you know, it's about problem solving, that some yeah. of these things are tricky. On an F1 race car, you take 500 measurements <laughs> each day and, you know, things don't go right first time. So it was about also developing the kind of resilience and perseverance and those sort of habits of mind and traits that are required to be successful in STEM careers. And teaching children those skills at an early age is so valuable. Yeah, and at the yeah. end of the, um, the project, 49% um, of children across um, the um, research group um, would uh, said science was their favourite subject compared to 7% nationally. And for girls, that was 53% of girls said science was their favourite subject, which was absolutely astonishing. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's such a testament to what simple interventions like that, just giving giving pupils, giving girls access to scientists and and. I mean, it's, it, you know, it's it's sort of like a role model. It's early exposure to someone and saying, yes, I can I can do that and I can be like them and I can solve problems. Um, I, I, I particularly like in the I'll put the um, links in the show notes, but um, the the graph where the en for engineering specifically, the career aspirations for the pupils went for the girls went from around zero to percent to over around 30 percent of pupils of girls considering careers in in engineering and I thought that was quite yeah quite significant I don't know whether engineering in particular is one of those subjects that girls just don't know about or you know people don't know about or whether it's perceived as quite a a man's subject because I, I did quite a lot of work on what their perceptions were at the start of my trial and research 
And typically, if you Google engineer, you still the main image that comes up is somebody with a hard hat on and on a construction site. Yeah. And we ask children what they think of when they think of it, somebody fixing a car in a garage. And so my goal was really to change that perception of what an engineer is. And for me, it wasn't enough for them just to have an encounter by meeting one engineer. It was that they needed to see a huge diversity of roles. We had people who were involved in bridge design. We had people involved in really complex, um, helping children with complex disabilities to have a better quality of life. There was a, such a range. And I think there's so much research about the importance of girls seeing people like them, somebody that they can identify with. So whether that was a male or female um, scientist or engineer, just seeing the kind of work that they did. Um, but I think having that diversity and being exposed to lots of different people was very powerful. We want them to see that there is a possibility for them and a potential for their careers and not to close down that opportunity too, yeah. too early on was key. Yeah, I particularly remember. Um, so I grew up near Manchester and there was this science centre called Eureka. And I remember they had like a little um, pilot plant in this uh, in this place that showed you how milk cartons were made and you could go and get your milk carton made and take it home. And I remember being so excited and using it as a pen pot for about two years after that, just being able to see it in front of me. It was so important. Yeah, and you're right, those experiences that you have at a young age are very, very pivotal. Mm -hmm. And when you look at those people that are in science and engineering careers and you in talk to them, with which I have done a lot, it, there's usually somebody either in their family or a key teacher or somebody in their childhood who made a real impression on them. He was very influential in their future career decision. Yeah, yeah. And I wonder, I guess, sort of picking up from this idea that there's a bit of an imbalance, um, I just wondered about your thoughts on on what you thought historically has led to um, to this gender imbalance in particular in science. Why why do you think there are more men than women in science nowadays? Yeah, that's that's interesting. Again, and I think also about this research that has shown that women applying for jobs think they have to be able to tick every single mm. box applying for a role and men may be more <laughs> able yeah. to take a chance and be braver <laughs> in applying for things. I think the same is true in science. There is this perception amongst pupils that oh, I'm not very good at science or I have to get everything right. And what I've tried to move away from in my teaching career was saying have a go and there's no wrong answer. And it's about learning and discovering and asking questions. And it's about deeper thinking and asking why and wondering and so I think it's very important as educators that we don't put people down or say that's the wrong answer but say that's a really interesting idea have you considered and framing it differently so that children feel like actually I could be successful at this and I don't have to get everything right because that can sometimes put girls off they don't yeah. feel confident enough to put up their hand and answer something or make a suggestion for fear that it could be wrong so I, th I think that's a key point too. Mm -hmm. And I suppose I mean one thing I've kind of wondered when we've been discussing this is um, how do you, you know, how do you access the primary teachers? What's so what's what's the the mechanism for saying like, oh, we have all these ideas of how we can make an impact at, at these young ages. But how do you get to those educators and, and tell them how to, I guess, change their practices? That's a good point as well, because teacher confidence has actually been shown to be a real issue in terms of science teaching in the mm. primary years. So the two organisations that are very good on this space, um, we've got the Primary Science Quality Mark, which is a mechanism, it's a ward for looking at science in your school, assessing 
where it's at currently and looking at ways of making it even better and that's a lot of there's a lot of support for that program so if you've got somebody in a school who's willing to put in the effort and look at science provision there's plenty of support out there and also the primary science teaching trust there are primary science teaching fellows up and down the country there's a real network of people who have researched and looked at best practice and are there to support teachers as well as stem learning who have hubs throughout the country so help is there but the prime primary teachers are stretched with yeah. the target set particularly for maths and literacy so there is an issue over time on the curriculum for science and so another thing I've looked at is how to make sure that some science gets onto the literacy curriculum so there's some cross-curricular links which can utilise time effectively as mm. well. Mm. And how much do you think, um, so sort of talking about your interventions and getting an F1 engineer to come into school, how much do you think that, for example, me as a PhD student or, or my colleagues or my friends who are scientists working as scientists or engineers in companies, I mean, how important is it to, to try and get those people to go into schools and inspire um, the children really and the girls? It's such an opportunity and I'm very passionate about that and the STEM ambassador programme is one way of doing it. Yeah. I think the issue is that is how to frame it and messaging. So what I've really enjoyed is being the bridge between people doing amazing careers and children and working with people to tell the story in a really relatable way to children and give those real world links that I mentioned earlier. I yeah. think it's important conversations to happen between educationalists and organisations to make sure that we're maximising opportunities that are there. And teachers really are the gatekeepers to people mm. and to raising aspirations. Mm. Something that I've found is that um, I have a few teacher friends who will say, come into my school um, and, and please teach my children and tell them about how amazing fuel cells are. But I guess, how do you get to those schools where they, they don't have those links to, um, you know, to a university or to a company? There is that. And again, so there's been some research about that, that schools nearer to universities are much better served. But I think in lockdown, we've seen the power of the Internet and <laughs> yeah. actually we can be accessible to schools wherever they are by one means or another. And I, I would encourage everybody to reach out as much as possible yeah. and time allowing to do that. So one of the motivations, particularly for my research, was around science capital and family capital. So science capital is considered to be um, kind of things that a child knows already, how they think, um, what they do and who they know. And mm. if people haven't had an experience, like you've been to a museum when you were younger and you've been taking places um, with your family, if a child hasn't had that opportunity to build up science capital and meet people firsthand, I looked at how could we in the school system try and compensate for that. And I did some research and went and interviewed 35 engineers in the workplace. And it was fascinating to me that 80% of them had had contact with a practical type person or engineer when they were growing up. That might have been mm. tinkering in the garden shed with granddad, fixing a bike with dad. And there was a huge correlation between a high science capital and family capital when you're growing up and going on to future STEM careers. Yeah, I think that's that's so important. I really like the idea of having this this science capital, almost like, you know, you can quantify someone's uh, someone's like stem engagement it's quite a scientific approach i like it it relates to some work right so professor louise archer at ucl has done a huge amount of work on this 
And there's a great video that you can look at on YouTube as well, which explains it in more detail. But I think it's a very powerful concept about this, these science experiences all go into sort of a hold all. And the amount of science experience you have as a child really influences that. The other piece of research that's related is that if parents are not particularly in favour of a science career, even if you've built up a lot of science capital with a pupil through school, for example, a parent can quash a child's STEM mm. career aspirations. And so another part of the puzzle is to think about how do we engage parents who may not have a science background or an engineering background, who may not really understand the opportunities that are out there for their children and inspire them on the subject too. So one of the things I did, I chose a theme of space at the time and did a big event for parents as well to really showcase careers to them, not just pupils to get yeah. them on board. I think as well there's you know there's a cultural um aspect of that sometimes that comes into play so I know in in some cultures it's just um you know chemistry for example is not regarded as something that should be studied at university it's not it's not regarded as a, a proper profession and I think maybe even less so if you're a girl so I sort of wonder how you manage to to engage those groups it is very challenging. Like you say, different countries view these careers differently. Engineers have a far greater status in some other countries than they do in the UK. It would see, be seen as a much more prestigious. Yeah. Why, why do you think that is? Sorry if I can interrupt. I think it's cultural and mm -hmm. I think it's the way it's framed. But I think things are starting to change. But if you look at engineering roles and particularly with regards to women, some sectors are better than others. So you'll find a lot more female engineers in um, telecommunications for example, things that seem to be kind of clean tech rather than mm. um, more hands on dirty engineering type roles or the way they're considered still within um, Formula One, for example, it's still very male dominated. So there's a way to go. And for me, there's, there's lots of things that help with that. So for me, I'm looking very much at how do we attract people and hook them into the idea that these careers are for them in the first place? So we run a lot of events through the Faraday Institution for attraction and particularly um, at the moment we're finding it very powerful at undergraduate level. So we've just run an internship programme over the summer. What we're finding is if you've spent an internship and seeing the opportunities and being inspired, then you're more likely to go on and pursue either a PhD in that subject or an industry opportunity at the end of your degree. And then gradually we can start to make a change. Yeah. It takes a number of years for the work that one does on attraction to then feed through um, that pool of talent mm. further into our community. And then once we've got our community, I think it's very much about engaging and developing people, thinking about where they want to go, giving them the knowledge, skills and aspirations to do really well and to succeed and making them feel part of the community, that every voice is heard and that there's a really inclusive environment. I think that's it, yeah, sort of the leaky pipeline is is a phrase that comes up again and, and again. And and it's true, you know, a, a woman has a child and she'll maybe want to take some time off. And I, I really feel like there's a, there's a need for companies to adopt way more tolerant or just inventive solutions to how, how you can allow these women to take this time off, but yeah. still not be hindered in their career progression, for example. Yeah, absolutely. I think if we'd have asked pre-COVID about people working from home, there would have been a lot of resistance and feeling yeah. that actually it's not as productive. And actually, I think we've shown that we can still be very 
yeah. productive by working in different ways and working more yeah. flexibly. And some people have had to change hours around childcare and homeschooling and, and still fulfill roles. So I think the future is uncertain in that sense. You know, I think this has paved the way for a different conversation, actually, about how mm. people do fulfill their roles. I wanted to pull it again back to um, this sort of idea that, you know, you have to try and engage girls and, and young children from the age of 10. I actually I saw a video randomly on YouTube recently, which kind of sparked my interest. It was about gendered toys and gendered imagery um, and how, you know, how we're still selling action men toys that are very much targeted at boys and we're still selling Barbie princesses and unicorns that are very much targeted at girls. And I found um, some research from the Institute of Engineering and Technology uh, and they published this report in 2016. They'd done some some research around Christmas time um, and it showed that boys were almost three times more likely to receive a STEM toy for Christmas than girls. And then they did a lot of internet searching as well at, at and um, 31% of um, sort of STEM related toys were listed as being for boys and only 11% were listed as being for girls specifically. So I wonder your thoughts on, on this when children are playing with toys, how much that might have an impact on their choice of career. It's a very interesting subject. It's something I have looked into a little bit. Particularly, I've noticed with Lego advertising, for example, there has been a huge change over the years. If you look at Lego adverts of old, it would be a boy holding some big construction um, thing that he'd made and a girl in the background looking kind of sheepish, holding something very small. So it was always portrayed like Legos for boys. They're going to make something way more superior and the girl's going to kind of be in the background. Whereas now Lego advertising has changed a huge amount or credit to them. And we also have some really exciting figures. So, for example, the NASA women who featured in Hidden Figures, the film, which is very yeah. powerful about the mathematicians who were involved in the US space programme. There are figures for them. So there are, there are lots of Lego sets now that relate to female scientists and engineers and people who've worked in STEM, which is really exciting. And I think that does have an impact mm. uh, on children and their, their perceptions. I think there are a lot of people now switched on to this idea and working in this space, trying to uh, readdress the balance, and which, and which is really exciting. And there, I know there are people who are making STEM pajamas for girls because <laughs> they didn't want their girls to be wearing Barbie pajamas anymore. <laughs> yeah why why now I mean do you think there's a reason that that it's now much more a topic of conversation I think there's more awareness that we do have a problem and sadly the statistics around STEM careers and girls in STEM careers have not changed hugely in the last number of years despite many organizations coming together and trying to make a change so I think there is there are questions being asked about why is it that those statistics are really slow to change and improve and what else can we do about it? Yeah. I think there are a lot of people talking about what can we do and coming together to look at positive solutions. Because mm. I think it's really interesting when you think about this sort of accepted figure that around 25% of um, scientists are female, but then when you break it down by, um, by STEM subject, it's like nine percent are engineers and then I can't remember what it is for the physical sciences but maybe somewhere around 43 percent or 44 percent somewhere around there um so I think it really it sort of clearly highlights and you touched on that earlier that that stem we use it as such a blanket term but actually within that there's so much nuance and so much um 
disparity within within STEM careers um that maybe something like biology like we've succeeded I don't know my my impression is that at university for example the biology course was the, the university I went to the biology course was pretty well split but my friend who did engineering was one of two students in her year so that's absolutely right that yeah. uh, it really depends on the type of science or engineering as to what the take-up is I think also A-levels there's quite a lot of statistics around A-levels and um, small numbers of girls doing physics for example and I have spoken to a number of PhD students about their career paths and ask them you know how how's it for you being one of very few women and uh, one of them told me the point at which she was the only girl in the physics a level class and she decided that was okay was the point at which she decided okay I can go for this career and, and that'll be all right but I do think it can be challenging if you find that there aren't people like you within that environment so I think there's kind of cultural shift that needs to happen with organizations as well to make it a place that women would want to be and want to work yeah we've definitely got more to do yeah because I think it's also you know we definitely what we want to avoid is is making the environment change the woman I guess so so absolutely you know she shouldn't have to go in and And for me that's about a change management program within organizations to make sure that women can be their true selves and not that they're having to feel like they have to take on sort of masculine attributes in order to survive in, in yeah. what may historically have been quite a male-dominated arena. Yeah we sort of touched on it a bit earlier but um, really just having a discussion about about the road forward so I do you know I do believe that actually even though the numbers haven't changed very much in in recent years this like you said this awareness is really meaning that there is sort of a, a clear road forward and and now I think people really understand and accept the value of having diversity within STEM so I just kind of wondered if you had any thoughts on whose job you thought it is to to engage more girls into STEM careers so is it the teachers who are teaching them or is it the science professionals or should the government be doing more I think it's really a collaborative approach and I think each of the people you've mentioned has a part to play in that what I think is really important is that educationists and organisations come together because there are a lot of organisations and industries who would really love to encourage more girls into STEM and have created a number of programmes for that. But unfortunately, with teachers as the gatekeepers, if it doesn't hit the curriculum objectives or it doesn't meet what teachers need, then sadly, some of those programmes get put to one side. So for me, it's, it's really ensuring that there's good links between all those organisations that you've talked about and government policy too, supporting uh, initiatives. I think we've seen a real difference with our internship this programme this year by having already done some attraction events prior to that and creating opportunities for um, minority groups who may not have otherwise known about mm. them or have applied and so we've done quite a lot of work at the Fowler Institution with an organisation called SEO London who work with minority groups, ethnic minority groups particularly and we've won some events where we've brought in our industry partners, given them sort of a whistle-stop tour of careers in the field, and then they've gone on to apply for some of these positions. So we're finding that by advertising more widely, 
reaching some people who may be disadvantaged for one reason or another. So that's very powerful. And for example, in our cohort of interns this summer, we've had 34% who are first generation to attend university. So we've reached a really wide pool of people who may not have had opportunities in the past, and we're really trying to support their careers from a very early stage. And we would like to support them ongoing and give them opportunities. So I, th I think there's a role for teachers, science professionals, and government policy also to support that in terms of trying to ensure that we can make some change and change the dial on the stats. And there are other organisations like Women in STEM, the WISE organisation, who are really championing this for greater gender diversity in the STEM careers. Yeah, I think I really loved, so, so for the listeners' benefit, the WISE um, women in science and engineering ran a campaign which was one million one in one in a million um was the the campaign so there they had this target of getting a million females in stem careers by by 2020 i think it was mm. um but and and so they were successful so now a, a million females form the the science workforce in in the uk and and i guess that's it as well as is like we should really be celebrating those things so as well as focusing on the negatives and and being quite pessimistic about where we've been in the past maybe we need to really focus more on on the successes and and what amazing things continue to go on and how the profile has continued to be raised for for women in science yeah, absolutely I think, I think that's really positive and i think going back to what we were talking about earlier with children and how we can help and encourage them a lot of work that I've done has been around habits of mind and how we can change them. I think we've got a society where children like quite instant quick fixes for things and that's not very well <laughs> aligned with STEM careers. So for me, building STEM careers for future is about building children who are good problem solvers, who are determined, who ask good questions, who are curious, who wonder about how the world around them works and want to know more and give them that kind of eye-opening awe and wonder that will inspire them into future careers yeah yeah and I hope for for young girls as well the increasing profile on on women in science there's some amazing female science communicators that I follow and I kind of hope that as as they continue to to take the stage a little bit that that can also provide another source of inspiration for for young girls because I I remember going into a an all-girls school one time doing some outreach and before we started talking about any science I put up a, a slide that had just male scientists on it so you know Isaac Newton and Brian Cox and Stephen Hawking and I said to the audience this audience of about 80 year eight girls so they must have been about 13 14 and said can can you name these people and they named every single one of them it was about six of them I think and then on the next slide, I, I put up all female scientists. So you had like Alice Roberts, you had Jocelyn Bell Bunnell, Marie Curie, and they couldn't name a single one. Mm. Um, and I don't know if it was very impactful for them, but certainly for me and I think the, the other two um, my, of my colleagues who were there, it was really impactful for us, I think, just just to see that. Yes, it's, it's it's very illuminating, isn't it? But I think mm. also when we're talking about gender, I think we want to make sure that we're careful in the way that we frame it because yeah, I'm passionate about everybody succeeding in STEM careers, no matter what their gender. Obviously, we want to change the needle and make sure that we are bringing girls through. But also we need gender allies and people 
um, male scientists and engineers who are really championing diversity in all its forms. So we're bringing women into the field, not the exclusion or ahead of men in any way, but it's getting that conversation going where the environment supports both and it's not one or the other. Sure. And, 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 and I think, you know, it applies to, to everything. It applies to race and disability and um, sexual orientation. And and even if you are, you know, a straight white man, you still have a, a really important role to play. And so I think changing that conversation as well is really important, making sure that people don't feel like they're attacked because they're the sort of in inverted commas, the norm absolutely and I think when we're recruiting it's really important that people are recruited on merit and talent but if we diversify the pool of people applying for opportunities then we are going to see that check that we get a more diverse workforce so I think there's lots of conversations that we haven't got time for today but I'm <laughs> in terms of um, how do you recruit how do you change the landscape within a workforce it obviously starts at a very young age with the research showing that really that it's never too early to start and then there's work to do at all the different stages through and then if you're looking at career progression which you've kind of touched on the Royal Society of Chemistry have done a, a good report on this and looking at females at different career stages and how the numbers drop off so there are a number of points where um, it gets more difficult to progress as a woman and opportunities start to close down. So it's looking at what can we do to reverse that trend as well. Mm. Mm. I found it so interesting that she said that children need to be inspired by as young as the age of 10. Can you remember being 10 and a, an enthusiastic scientist? Yeah, I think it's um, kind of dipped in and out of being inspired into science. But one thing that really jumped out at me was when you started talking about Eureka. So mm. I used to go to Eureka. Oh. <laughs> I can't believe you went too. Um, I thought it was brilliant. It was such a fun place. Um, I don't know what it says about me as a scientist, but I distinctly remember they had like a fake town and you could like go and be a shopkeeper at Marks and Spencer. <laughs> And that was one of my favourite things to do that. But um, yeah, it's like, like nice being surrounded by things that go pop and bang. I'm not sure what age I first like had career aspirations, but I remember that my first career aspirations, my mum asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I said, well, mum, I want to be a mermaid, but if I can't do that, then I guess I'll be a bus driver. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I do remember I we used to watch some tv as a child and through like the adverts I ended up badgering my mum to get me like a microscope for Christmas mm. <laughs> I ended up with this like little toy microscope and I'd look at leaves or like dead flies <laughs> that were yeah. just around yeah um, and I think that was probably quite um formative what about you Drasty what do you think um I don't think mine my inspiration to study science started that early at all I was very the opposite as a child I remember being inspired by the arts more than anything but it was only up until I came to I think I remember choosing A-levels and mm. I don't know if any of you remember but did you watch Bang Goes the Theory on BBC One ever? Yeah mm. yeah I did I loved that program. So they would I don't know take apart the Big Bang Theory for example yeah. and explain it in a very everyday kind of way but um, the most inspiring thing about that, even though it wasn't a sort of hands-on experiment of any kind, but I think it was seeing there were two 
female presenters to male presenters. I remember it was the first time where I was like, oh, this is somebody who is a sort of pure scientist, not somebody who is a a doctor or an or an engineer or a, a all the other sort of typical science focused careers that I grew up knowing. And I remember just yeah. being like, oh, if, if you know, that's somebody that. I guess is a representation of me in a way but that's what inspired me to choose to study A-level physics and A-level chemistry. Yeah Um, and you kind of wonder then seeing them on TV or us going into schools it's it's sort of we've talked about it before but if you go and speak to a 16 year old who's considering her options for A-levels and beyond like you never really know the sort of lasting impact that you might have but we've talked before about whether there were any female role models who inspired our science journey and that we can remember and I guess that's another example for you Drasty of someone who without you really even maybe realising did actually play a role. Mm. I don't think I realised it at the time at all it was definitely something I thought about much later into I think sort of second year of my PhD when I was really thinking about it but at the time no it was just really fun science done by somebody that didn't look like Einstein and it was just (laughs) eye-opening yeah 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 and there's another point that Fran picked up on she thinks reframing science as an iterative problem-solving exercise which is what it is in like engineering rather than looking at it as loads of brainy people who are just destined to find a massive discovery that's going to change the world. Did that impact you when you were kind of growing up and thinking about vocations? Yeah, I think I always remembered as a child, like my, you know, what is a scientist? I always imagined Einstein. I think that's a very common one. Um, Mm. I imagined Einstein and he's this crazy dude with crazy grey hair and he solves all these numbers in his head and I was sort of like well I closed my eyes and I don't think of numbers my brain doesn't think in that way therefore I'm not a scientist and and I think we need to break that perception and showing more people the actual steps that are taken to become a scientist doing more of that is is a step forward in breaking down this sort of perception of a scientist being a super genius of some kind um just keeping all these secrets yeah the other thing that was really interesting was now we know that we need to like inspire people from as early as 10 like whose role is it to do that and carry that through I don't think that's a very easy question to answer I know Fran talked about the interplay but I was really interested in your views on that because there's all there's so many pressures and stresses and all mm. of these groups like the government, teachers, researchers, oh, professionals who could go into schools and parents. Yeah. Like how does that all interplay? What do you mm. think? For me, I always notice how the parent stands when I am giving a demonstration of an experiment. Is that mm-hmm. parent sort of looking away in a different direction, sort of like, you take care of my kid for five minutes? Um, yeah. Are they interested? The outreach that I do personally is very to both because I think it is yeah. about fostering that. You can't give everything to that child. You can't be like, I'm going to give you this amazing experience that you're going to carry for the rest of your life and then you're going to be really successful in STEM. Like it won't be that. Mm, yeah. But I can see that this parent doesn't quite understand what I'm showing their child. So maybe if I show the parent how cool this thing yeah. is too. Yeah. 
because they're going to have a lot of say in this child's life and sure. what they experience and what decisions they make. And it's not just outside of the classroom, it's inside the classroom too, you know, how how do you give teachers the tools to, to inspire their children when they have a tight curriculum to work to? Um, and often I think science and maths are kind of treated as the boring, the boring subjects. And so how do you make those creative? Maybe some teachers might not have the time or the resources to be trained in being inspiring. Mm. But mm. then isn't it a question of it shouldn't really be an add-on or an extra. It should be a requirement for a teacher. So maybe changing the curriculum and how it is taught yeah. is sort of a, a bigger way to solve that and, and sort of exposing young children to loads of different scientists and loads of different fields in mm. different parts of their careers as well. If we go into a school and say, hey, I'm a real life scientist and this is what I do, they might get inspired by that. coming you have been listening to the unbalanced podcast sharing is caring so please send this on to a friend if you've enjoyed what you've listened to then get in touch with us ask us questions we would love to hear from you and um, you can like and comment on this episode you can tweet us to continue the discussion we are here to listen and here to talk we'd like to thank the institute of physics london and southeast branch for funding the equipment to support this project and any links are in the show notes along with any resources relevant to today's episode. See you next time on the Unbalanced Podcast.